It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Inside the Times and the Sunday Times, and I'm your host, Emma Tucker, Deputy Editor of the Times. Today's story focuses on the Syrian city of Raqqa and the extraordinary military blitz that finally routed Islamic State after more than four years of ISIS rule. Our Middle East correspondent Richard Spencer was on the ground. Richard, thanks for joining us today. So when you went to cover Raqqa, explain the journey. Where did you fly to? How did you get there? I'd been preparing to go to Raqqa for some time, but the final collapse of uh, ISIS happened quite quickly. I spoke to the foreign editor, Roland Watson, on the Saturday and said, look, I, mean, I think it's actually collapsing now. I think there's a, there might even be some kind of surrender deal. So literally the next day, I got on a direct flight from Beirut, where I lived to Erbil, uh, which is in the Kurdish area of northern Iraq. And luckily, I had all my permits in order already. And I, the next morning at six o'clock, I headed for the Syrian border. There's a little area of the Syrian border, which is under the control of Syrian Kurdish forces. And I got there by about lunch. Lunchtime, there's a little boat that takes you across the river and show the local Kurdish forces your papers. And then you sort of head down uh, south towards Raqqa. And how long did it take you to get from the border there to Raqqa? It's, um, I had to stop off to do some more paperwork. You have to get more sort of, I say, permits, register with the, with the, the Kurdish forces that were sort of running the battlefields in those areas. And then it's another three hours drive down to, to Raqqa itself. I mean, it sounds incredibly complicated, but does it actually work, the system? Did you have to pay bribes or was it, rel- once you've got the paperwork, was it relatively straightforward? Yeah, the, I mean, the Kurds are sort of fairly amazing, both the Iraqi Kurds and the uh, Syrian Kurds are, are pretty organized and no, no bribes actually. I mean, you do find cases where money has to change hands or they demand that money change hands. You try and get out of it, obviously. But the Kurds are pretty, pretty organized and they have a, they have a system. And as you were traveling, you were traveling with your fixer and a driver or just was it just you and the fixer? I had a driver as well, a local guy who, who knows the roads and uh, the fixer. I mean, it's quite a difficult area. You don't want your fixer to be distracted by, um, by having to sort of watch out for potholes and the checkpoints as well. Mm. And as you, how did you know you were nearing the battle zone? Sometimes you do know, sometimes you don't. In this case, I mean, I've been to the, been to the city before. I knew the layout of the land. The first thing, obviously, you see is lots of destroyed buildings. This is the, the, the area we were driving through was the area that ISIS had been retreating from for the previous year or 18 months. So destroyed buildings from airstrikes, totally deserted villages, no one there. Then you see a couple of refugee camps. And you know that, I mean, this is a kind of fairly, not somewhere you're going to be wandering around. 
And how close did you get to the actual fighting? Well, I'd say as I entered the city, the, it was it was finishing. I mean, there were the, um, the the last you know gunshots were being fired. So actually, I was I mean, I sort of arrived in time in the sense that for the last three days, Kurdish forces had actually blocked all journalists from entering the war zone because, as we discovered fairly quickly, they they had been negotiating an exit with the last remaining ISIS fighters and their families, and they didn't want to see the deals that were going on. So they cordoned off the battlefront. And then as that happened, they then let us in and we were able to go into the city. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you saw when you got to Raqqa? What what kind of state was it in? Raqqa was like nothing else I'd ever seen. I've seen a lot of places that have been partially destroyed. The destruction in Aleppo between 2013 and 2016, when it fell to government forces, when I watched that progressively get destroyed. I've never seen anywhere that was so comprehensively obliterated. I mean... You know that whole this whole area was taken apart by Genghis Khan in the uh, in the 13th century and his and and his sons and it I mean it was different from that but it was on the similar scale in that every single building had been flattened by an airstrike every single building from the entrance to the city to the city centre out the other side it's a low rise city sort of five six stories mainly concrete blocks of flats every single one the roof was flattened in totally levelled never seen anything like it. And how did that make you feel? I mean, it actually was, it was one of those sort of so striking. It removed you, if you like. It was something you couldn't imagine anyone living here. I mean, I'd been there before in, in 2013 when it first sort of fell out of government hands. And I was literally looking, trying to recognise places. And I couldn't recognise them because they weren't there anymore. It was like being in a, like being in a painting. It was not... It was not something that you could recognise from your normal human instincts. And did you come across any people while you were there? No. I mean, the entire civilian population had fled. I mean, there were lots of fighters. There were lots of Kurdish fighters there who'd taken over the city centre. There were, oddly enough, this kind of unexpected band of British fighters, these British volunteers who've gone and joined up with these Kurdish forces that are fighting ISIS there. Um, There was a handful of them which was kind of, you know, looked round and heard a Liverpool accent that was kind of slightly strange no civilians a few cats a few um, dead bodies but at that stage no civilians and were there any points at which you feared for your own safety I mean actually at that stage not as long as I was careful I mean you have to be careful of IEDs so you're watching where you're walking very closely and you're not sort of going up side streets you're not entering buildings but it's not like that you know the, the time you're most scared actually is oddly enough when you're on the other side when you're being bombed because that's pretty random but uh it was pretty clear that there had been a deal the ISIS fighters had withdrawn so you weren't going to see a counter-attack there probably weren't going to be uh, you know some sleeper cell taking a pot shot from an abandoned middle which is one of the big worries in when you go into situations like that that there'll be a handful of fighters left behind that they hadn't noticed to taking pot shots but it was pretty clear that the whole place had been emptied and how did covering Raqqa compare with other war zones that you've covered I mean on a scale was it the worst it was the most it was the most it was the strangest I think I mean they're, they're much you know, being in the middle of a battle, which, you know, you do get involved in sometimes, and that's much worse because you're seeing people killed in front of you and you're seeing children being killed in front of you sometimes. And that's that's kind of, that's the sort of thing we think, you know, how did I really see that? That's, you know, that's kind of unimaginable. Here, this, here the Kurds are very controlled and everything is a very controlled 
scene that you're witnessing. They're very efficient, the Kurds. They had secured it very carefully. Uh, they say they'd done this deal. They got rid of the ISIS fighters. So you were just left with this very sort of surreal landscape to examine. And then you could go around and then you could sort of start tracing the battle, particularly, though, particularly having followed it for some months. And then when I did get my bearings from having been there before, as I would say, oh, you know, there's... There's the clock tower square where, you know, where I was standing five years ago and I did. I remember doing an interview there. And then three weeks after I left, that was when ISIS carried out its first public executions in Raqqa in the same place mm-hmm. that I'd been. And now there I am and the clock tower has been destroyed and all the shops mm-hmm. that I was interviewing people in were destroyed. And, you know, around the corner is where Jihadi John was hit by a hit by a missile. And you suddenly start putting these the backstory together and it becomes kind of much more real. And what, what were some of the conflicts where you actually saw people being killed or, or if you, where, where you, you mentioned earlier that there have been occasions where you saw children? Where would that have been? So, I mean, the most graphic one was in Aleppo in 2012. I was waiting to do an interview at a rebel base with a rebel commander and um, a Syrian regime jet came in and, and tried to bomb it. I assume they were aiming for this 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 base, which was uh, in in the middle of the um, east side of the city, and it hit. Um, they hit a house next door, and uh, so you know, you went around the corner, and there were literally there was uh, body parts, and uh, I mean, I was a very a little, I mean, basic to put it bluntly, half of a twelve-year-old girl, the top half. So it was very clearly a little girl, pretty little girl with black hair, but it was pretty gruesome. And when you see something like that, how do you cope? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, in, it varies. I mean, I think, I mean, there is a certain dissociative mechanism which kicks in, particularly in a case like that, where the, where the fighting, where, where what's going on is quite intense. I mean, you're concentrating very hard just to, I mean, just mean bluntly to get the story and to find out what's going on. And it's kind of confusing. You don't know who, who, any, who anybody is. And so you're concentrating so hard that I think that's in some way, then you see something completely off the wall in terms of horror like that. It kind of you kind of dissociate from it. It's kind of harder if it's a, if it's kind of a slow burn of a story and you're seeing it every day. But I think people react in very different ways. In these very intense environments, you must form very close bonds with the people you're travelling with. Tell us a bit about how it works with a fixer. I mean, most of us have contacts all over any region we cover. So I have I have a couple of fixers, kind of you know, sort of master fixers, if you like, in who I work with a lot, who I'm very close to. A Syrian guy who, who who we employ at the Times, another friend of mine who I've worked with for years in Egypt, and then for very for you then have local guys who know the area very well. So I know so in northeast Syria it's mostly Kurdish area, and the the say the forces are Kurdish. though Raqqa itself is an Arab city, so there you need someone who is you know is well connected with the local forces there the Syrian for the the, the the Syrian Democratic Forces was basically Kurdish led so you need someone who knows their commanders can communicate in Kurdish with them also knows the the politics enough to be able to negotiate the Arab areas as well so you tend to have these kind of local guys who are who are sort of very well clued in at a, at a much more local level and then you they you hire much more on a sort of ad hoc basis so you get a recommendation and someone who's worked with them before um, sometimes you work with the same guys if you keep going back to an area and yes you do forge just sort of a very close bond you know you're seeing these kind of quite extraordinary things together and uh, you have to be um, in, in it varies sometimes I mean, in Syria, after seven years of this war, all the fixers are incredibly, you know, they're far more experienced than we are and they, uh, they're they far more able to look after themselves. But there are times when you're going into an area 
where something like this has just happened and you have to be quite careful that the fixer is not overwhelmed by what they're seeing because it may be the first time they've seen a dead body or something. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever been in a situation where you haven't been able to file your story? You know what? It's my biggest terror, and um, perhaps because it is my biggest terror, I've always found a way. There was the biggest nightmare was the... the, when the Tavris Square uprising happened in Egypt, and Egypt is you know is fairly you know well connected country, Wi-Fi, there's you know GPRS you can file anywhere. It's even if you can't, you can nip into a hotel and use their business centre. So we all turned up at a very short notice when we suddenly realised these protests were getting out of hand, and and then suddenly the government turned off the internet and all communications. They turned off the telephones, they turned off the mobile phones, they turned off the Wi-Fi. Literally, I couldn't get a phone call to the office. And, uh, and none of us had bought satellite equipment because we didn't think we'd need it, uh, which was stupid, actually. And I spent two hours in the evening panicking, thinking I wasn't going to be able to file my copy. And it was kind of this extraordinary day. It was a particularly good day to file. And we went to all the hotels. No, no, there's no, no Wi-Fi, no Wi-Fi. And, and I was with a friend, and he suddenly saw the silhouette of a TV camera on a roof in the moonlight because it was quite late by this stage and when we looked up we could see there must be a film crew up there so we we actually charged into this we was I was right on deadline we charged into this house sort of apologized to the family who were having dinner thinking well they must have let this film crew on their roof which they had luckily and charged up the stairs and found a French tv crew and they and said can we you know you must have a satellite feed and they said yeah we've we've managed to get the satellite uplink and we said, can we file a copy to, onto an email? And uh, I was with my, this Egyptian fixture I mentioned before, and uh, who's a very erudite guy. And they said, do you know, they said to him, do you know anything about the politics of this? And he said, sure, I've been you know, covering this for years, this sort of thing. Well, not quite li- like this, but I've been covering Egyptian politics for years. And they said, OK, in return for an interview with him, you can <laughs> do an upload. So they interviewed him live on air for French TV while I was standing there with my little memory stick with his copy on it and then they let me plug in and I, I got it about five minutes to spare. How extraordinary. Did you actually manage to speak to the foreign desk or did you no, just no, no, file the dispatch? Just out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> and did it make it into the paper? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Excellent. You know, we talked earlier about the nature of war reporting and obviously the Times has been covering wars for, well, centuries. Why do you think war reporting is still important in this day and age? I think in some ways it's even more important because everything's now so immediate. You know, you know, William Russell was, you know, sending his dispatches back and they arrived at the Times three weeks later. Now everyone's used to seeing everything and knowing everything. And actually, the wars are one of the things that people don't see. You know, when people travel the world, they go on holiday to Thailand or Timbuktu or wherever. Everyone's used to seeing everything face to face. So if they're not seeing the most important, if you like, the, the end point of all politics happening in with that immediacy, then they're not going to understand it. So I think we have to see what's happening to people 
particularly when they're the consequences of our own political decisions, you know, our own often democratic decisions here has an effect thousands of miles away in terms of who's getting bombed or killed. And, uh, you know, you, the, the more you, the closer you are, the more immediate it is for the reader or the viewer. Richard Rucker is very much associated with the British jihadists who were the jailers and executioners of various journalists and aid workers. Did you know any of those affected? I did. I'd, I'd come across them and none of them were close friends. I had the, the journalists were very much part of a sort of a freelance group of journalists that sort of were based in Turkey and going over the border into, into Syria, into the rebel areas. I'd met a couple of them and, and dealt with a couple of them and I spoke to Stephen Sotloff not long before he went into Syria, the the last time when he was kidnapped, just about uh, you know the risks and the, the the routes that I'd taken a couple of weeks previously when I went into the same area of Syria, and, and that just shows how random it was really. He he was very unlucky. We think that the jihadists had been alerted to another journalist who had been supposed to be going in, but who didn't, and there was some sort of confusion there, and he got in the middle of that by accident. And yes, and then they disappeared and were held for months and years and ended up in those terrible scenes outside Raqqa. And with this added twist that, you know, as if Raqqa hadn't suffered enough from the outside world, uh, it was these foreigners who never been to Syria before, knew nothing about the war really or why they were there, who ended up being this sort of public face of the, of the terror they were inflicting. And what about, obviously now there are still a handful of British jihadists out in the Middle East. What do you think should happen to them, the so-called Beatles? Well, yes, so Jihadi John, as I say, was he was, you know, struck by a drone-fired missile while standing in the clock tower square in, in Raqqa. One guy of the four people who the security services think are the Beatles, the other three are all in custody, one's in prison in Turkey. And that's a big question because he, he wasn't accused of murder when he was put on trial in Turkey. He was just put on trial with sort of various terrorist offences and being a member of ISIS and got seven years. So at some point, the British authorities will have to decide what to do with him when he comes out of, out of prison. And Turkey will presumably want to deport him back to Britain as he's a British citizen. And then there are these two guys in Syria in Kurdish hands who um, are subject to this extraordinary sort of whatever the opposite of a tug of war is. Nobody wants them. The Kurds don't want them. The British don't want them. They may end up going to America, but America doesn't really want them, but they are accused of killing American citizens. So that's a, that's, that's a possibility under American law. I mean, the obvious thing to me is that they're British. They've committed offences against British people, apparently, allegedly. They've left Britain to join a terrorist organisation, and it seems to me the responsible thing to do is to put them on trial in Britain. And I know there are many political and legal reasons why that presents problems, but it seems to me that if we're going to take this role in the world that we've, we, we have and take part in foreign conflicts, we also have a responsibility to help clear up the mess afterwards. So why do you think the British are so reluctant to bring them back? I think there's, there's the issue of what happens if... The jihadis come back, and what happens when they're not in prison? I mean, I, I don't think anyone minds jihadis coming back and being put in prison, but what happens if these two, are, you know, they, they deny it? The information against them is, as far as we know, is, is held by MI6 and other security agencies. Are they going to be able to bring that evidence in court? We don't know. You know, what happens if they, the evidence isn't strong enough and they, they get acquitted? Does that mean these two guys are just left to wander the streets? I mean, that's kind of, that would be a very unpopular outcome, I think, for most people. Do you 
feel an attachment to places that you've covered? Like, I mean, are you looking forward to one day going back to a rebuilt Raqqa? Yeah, Raqqa particularly. Raqqa I mean, does mean a lot to me, actually. I mean, I, I, just because I, I was there, as I say, I was there just after it fell out of government hands and just as Jabhat al-Nusra or ISIS, uh, you know, the jihadis were taking over the city. And uh, But it was an extraordinary moment because Raqqa's, Raqqa, I don't suppose many people ever heard of Raqqa before this happened, but it does have this amazing history because for, for the historians, Harun al-Rashid, who was this great sort of Islamic caliph based in Baghdad, who the, you know, the Arabian Nights is all about, um, you know, he's, he features in the, the Thousand One Nights. Uh, so he's this legendary, well, real, but legendary sort of caliph and sort of who um, he discovered Raqqa, which is on the banks of the Euphrates, and he built pleasure gardens there and moved his palace there, moved his court there. So you have this idea of Shahrazade being there uh, at the peak of sort of, you know, the Islamic era in the ninth century. And uh, then it sort of disappeared into the, the mists of time. Um, but it had a memory of that. And it was all very, so it was quite a modern city. It was, uh, it had, you know, a couple of universities. It regarded itself as liberal. And and when I went there, say it it, it had set up all these sort of civil activist groups um, in the sort of three months, in this three month window between the regime disappearing and ISIS taking over completely. And there was a there was a sort of green gardening group that was going around planting lettuces on people's roofs and and trying to beautify the city parks. And there was I went to. Um, the, one of the human rights groups that had set up was having a philosophical discussion group every week. So I went to a meeting of this philosophical discussion group and they were, they were really excited that a Westerner was here. And um, then when I, they discovered I studied philosophy at university, they were, they were completely bowled over. And they, one of them said to me, said, uh, you know, the question we're trying to ask is how do we get from Aristotle to the EU without the intervening 2000 years? And that was quite a sort of moving experience. And some of those went on to found this group called Raqqa is Being Slaughtered Silently, which was this sort of monitoring group that tried to describe what was going on under ISIS. And quite a few of them were killed. Some of them escaped to Turkey. Two more were actually killed in Turkey by an ISIS cell there. And they kept us informed through their network of, of people in Raqqa of what was going on there. So it was kind of it was kind of a very sort of emotional to see the disaster that happened there after this sort of initial period of, of hope. And I went into, when I was there in, in, say in 2013, there is Harun al-Rashid Park there, which, and it's got a sort of, you know, statue of Harun al-Rashid there. And uh, so I, um, I sort of laughingly said to the park keeper, so um, here's Harun al-Rashid, where's Shahrazad? And he jokingly said, well, they probably cut her head off. And when I went back there, uh, you know, after it fell, I, I went and found the park and, and they'd cut uh, Haruna Rashid's head off. <laughs> what an extraordinary story. That's been absolutely fascinating. Your stories are incredible. And thank you very much for telling them to us this afternoon. Thank you. This has been produced by Alexis Sogal and Sam Joyner. Additional research was done by James Stannard. 